This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In this GHIL lecture, Prabhu Moapatra talks about a genealogy of labor regulation in India, the career of the employment contract. When was the employment contract introduced in India? This is a perfectly reasonable question, given that 93% of the 50 million strong workforce in India is officially classed as, quote, informal labor, unquote, and that the much-hyped labor codes, which have yet to be implemented, are more a mere assemblage of the fragments and ruins of the once vaunted formal employment contract than coherent pieces of, quote, code, unquote. Despite this, the story of the forging of the formal employment contract in the first decades of the 20th century, of its tortuous career and eventual dismantling over the next hundred years, may give us a clue to the persistent paradoxes of India's laboring landscape. Prabhu Muapatra's lecture will examine how the employment contract came into being in India and how it was transformed and destroyed over the last century. Prabhu Muapadra is Professor of Modern Indian History at the University of Delhi, where he teaches economic history, labor history, and global history of servitude to master students. He researches and supervises research on the history of long-distance migration, the history of education, the history of informality, and labor law. He has held appointments at the Humboldt University of Berlin, the University of Göttingen, the École Normale Supérieure Cachon, the University of Amsterdam, Yale University, and the University of Cambridge. I'm deeply grateful to German Historical Institute and to the director, Christina Hodenberg, for kindly inviting me, supporting my application to be here in England and to be a resident fellow. I'm deeply grateful to you, ma'am. I'm grateful to Indra Sengupta, who also supported my application here. And uh, I'm genuinely pleased to be speaking about the question that I've raised. It's about the genealogy of labor regulations in India. And in some way, speaking here in German Historical Institute, I'm channeling some of the great German work on these areas. But it's uh, some of the people whom I am channeling and I'll be speaking through, or they would be speaking through me in a bit, beginning from a director here, Elia Willibald Steinmetz whose work really inspired me. A collection which came out from German Historical Institute in 2000 about private law, which was one of the most uh, inspiring uh, comparative legal history that I read and in which labor law, labor law history was very important. In fact, I conceptualized my project or think about this project precisely in order to kind of complement in some ways the European comparative law, which was Professor Steinmetz's aim. And I wanted to kind of broaden that into the non-European historical context and to find it. So, which is one of the channels. Other is, of course, something I'll be speaking about will be two great philosophers. For instance, Jürgen Habermas, whose concept of juridification is a very, very crucial concept in my work, as it was in Professor Steinmetz's work. So, in one sense, that. 
then um, I think it's Gunther Teubner, Professor Gunther Teubner. And as it happens, as I, I want to really want to in some way connect with an excellent piece by Professor Wolfgang Strick about, in a way, anticipating many of the arguments that I was trying to build, but it's already published in 2020 in Max Planck Institute. These are some of the German historians and German social scientists and scholars who have influenced my work. And I directly want to refer to them. There are many others who I would like to say. I don't want to talk about the greats, the German greats. Why is it so strange that I am talking about a labor history, labor law history, which is an Anglo-Saxon context, but finding so much German resonances or German. It's, it's an interesting thing. The most important person around the question of the, the question that animates my work in some ways was a German labor law specialist who came to Oxford and studied here, Otto Kahn-Freund. And it is Otto Kahn-Freund's particular way of, of defending, defending the theme of my work, which is about the employment contract. I'll come to that. But the way he defended it was one of my earliest way, earliest uh, attempts at trying to locate employment contract as a historically situated set of relations. And so Autocon Fund's work is, again, very crucial for me. And he, in fact, shaped the Anglo-Saxon notion of what labor law is actually and what the employment contract is. So all these are preliminaries for me to just to, in, in a sense, to connect to these greats and that many of them are about Germans or the German historical understanding has in some ways is, a, is my own attempt to connect to a really great tradition. So um, the theme of my talk is genealogy of labor regulations. And the key point about this talk is about what I call the career of the employment contract. I think many of you know, employment contract is a specific form of contract. It is not like any other contract. It is a very, very specific form of contract. It, in fact, is so specific and such an outlier in so sense that people often think it is not a contract at all. It's, in fact, a kind of a for contract. It is actually a status relation which has been hived off into the notion of the contract. So that's I, I'm going to speak about it a little later. So my aim in this talk would be to tell you about the specific history of the employment contract, its origin, how did it come about, and its career over roughly a century. Now, why is it important to talk about it? And why is it paradoxical that I talk about that? How can you talk about employment contract in a society and a country like India where out of a... 500 million people of 500 million workforce, 93% people are out of the employment contract. Only about 7% of the workforce of a 500 million have what we call employment contract. So it should be seen as an outlier rather than to be. So we should be talking about those who are out of the employment contract rather than those who are in the employment contract. But that's one of the most important paradoxes of, our, of the, that it is this 7% or the idea of the employment contract, which has shaped the condition of work of the 93%. It's paradoxical, but that's one of the arguments that I make over a long period of looking at the history of the employment contract, that this employment contract, the way it was created and the way it was shaped, also produced in some sense the working conditions or the 
so-called lack of regulation or lack of contractualization of nitrogen. It's a strangely paradoxical way, but that's one of the arguments that I go. So if I'm going to talk about the employment contract, I also want to tell you about two other paradoxes that have shaped my work. In the sense, as I told the first one, I've already told you why in a quantitative numerical form, employment contract is only for a small group of people, while the bulk of the people are outside. That's a paradox. The second paradox is, comes from the history or the career of this employment. What we are seeing today is actually a dismantled form of the employment. Employment contract has been dismantled. If I explain what an employment contract is, let me say that today the employment contract lies just the elements which were brought together in order to forge the instrument or the device called the employment contract has lies today in shambles. The detritus of this employment contract is now to be found in a particularly strange assemblage of uh, law and codification, which has happened recently. Uh, in labor law codes. Um, that we could, I'm going to discuss a little bit about that. But the paradox lies in this fact that till now, the formal carapace of the employment contract has not changed. Till now. Employment contract, the origins of which I will say begins from the 1920s, hasn't changed substantially since then. The carapace of it, the form of it. The content has been hollowed out on that. So that India's massive workforce and massive informal, informalization of the workforce has happened despite the employment contract retaining its form. So these two paradoxes, the numerical insufficiency or numerical minorities of in employment contract and the fact that this employment contract remains the same in form but the conditions of work, which it tries to describe, which tries to capture, has changed massively. So in these two senses, why do you keep the form and change the content? How has it happened? So in a way, my study of the employment or my attempt to study an employment contract is to be located in a very specific historical conjuncture. I would show, or this is my point here, that this employment contract emerges at a particular time suspended between two major temporal phases. The first comes from the 19th century, a labor regime, a particular type of labor regime that I will discuss, of which I have studied a lot, which I will call for the time being a penal contract regime. It was a contractual, labor contractual regime, but which had criminal consequences for the workers. If you broke the contract, the workers were criminally prosecuted. So that's that's one type of regime which existed, and that regime shifts in the 1920s with the rise of the what I call the elements of the employment contract. The employment contract emerges in the 1920s, various elements of it, and this goes on till the 1980s and 1990s, and from that time onwards, we have the dismantled contract uh, of the employment contract and emergence of a new regime which is coming up whose characteristics are still not fully clear to us. Let's call it the gig economy. So in a way, the past of the employment contract and the future of the employment contract. In the sense, in a way, the shadow of the past of the employment contract falls on the employment contract, shapes it in some way, that's my argument. And the employment contracts, the role or in some way, the employment contracts features 
seep into the future in the newly emergent gig economy. We'll come to that. So this is the broad, broad outline of my argument. And I just want to quickly go through some of the issues. This is something which happened very recently. The last bastion of formal employment contract was in the army of India. Being a member of the Indian army or being recruited to the Indian army meant that you have not only security of employment, but you also have welfare benefits. This Two conditions. Employment. What is an employment contract? Employment contract is a work contract, a contract how to work and what you get in exchange of your work. That's one aspect. The other aspect which is there is about what you call the welfare, the benefits aspect. This braiding together or mixing together of benefits of with the employment though of, of work contract with benefits constitutes the employment contract. That's the simplest way of talking about it. That means it's a work contract which is open-ended. It's not for a fixed term. It has. It not only describes how you work, it also in some sense controls or at least gives you benefits when you, you can't work. Pensions, when you are sick, when you can't work. So it connects both the work relation and non-work relationship in some sense. So that's the employment contract. Now I want to tell that the army was the last bastion of the employment contract. To be recruited to the army, you had possibility of working and also to get benefits. You had, of course, you lost out a lot about you. You were not, uh, it's, it's a, in, in a sense, a special situation. You were not governed by the normal labor law in some sense, but you had all these uh, benefits plus a degree of security, which you, you traded off in this. The government in the latest attempt to reform created a new system of completely what you call time-bound contractual employment for the army. In a sense, it's a four-year contract that you stay in the army, you get a certain lump sum variety, then 75% of them will be thrown out of that. Only about 25% might get into a kind of a schedule. One cannot understand in a situation of India today with a massive unemployment, massive unemployment, how important was the prospect of going into the army. The army was and not just an army for where you learn to do national service. It was the only refuse of the people who didn't have jobs. And often they trained hard for many years trying to get into the army. And so there was when the government decided to new thing. This was a, this was a massive protest by those who were prepared for it. They were not prepared for this short term contractual informal army form and it, the protests were very much there. So the next slide is just uh, telling you about the new assemblage of uh, labor laws which happened. That means a certain amount of simplification of labor law was attempted because one of the characteristic feature of the emergence of the employment contract and its widespread application to the extent that it was there also meant a proliferation of labor laws. This was the process which actually, borrowing from Habermas, Willibald Steinmetz had talked about, was juridification of labor relations. That means labor relations were not between private contract between two people, but were now colonized by law. The law entered and shaped that relationship. It came from outside and shaped it. Now, this led to what was known as juridification meant a huge proliferation of laws. 
This happened all over the world. A proliferation of legal labor relations, uh, labor laws, or particular codes for labor law. Now, this was sought to be uh, kind of tamed and transformed through this new attempt by the government in the in India, in a way which brought together varieties of about about 45 central laws and about 145 state laws, provincial laws, which were brought together and were all made into four big chunks of codes, the labor codes. These codes were meant to simplify labor laws, but they suffer from a great deal of incoherence. I cannot discuss all about it, but this is one of the attempts to so-called de-juridify labor relations. That means to go towards a new form of contractual relations, which will be different from the employment contract. But in this codes, I cannot discuss fully, but you will find the ruins of the earlier employment contract strewn around in several of these clauses. So you have industrial relations code, you had social security code, you had occupational safety code, and you had what's the, the, the four, four codes around which these laws were um, uh, have been compressed into. Wages codes on wages. So these four codes have been not yet fully notified, but they are always on the verge of being notified and massively protest. They are massively opposed by the trade unions. Trade unions do not agree with this form. So this is somewhere delayed. But this is if if one studied this law or this this particular assemblage, one can see how this there might have been a method in the madness in how this. Um, how to keep the form of the labor law, but change its content. This is where new forms of, for instance, how to how to provide certain amount of uh, social security to the gig workers is brought in, how to provide fixed term workers and so on and so forth. They're being brought in here, are being in some sense, the attempt is by, in order to keep the employment, uh, the form of the employment contract, but to bring in new elements, which perhaps point to the future. The next one is, this is the East India Company Sepoy. And this is the earliest from the late 18th century figures and early 19th century the, when the East India Company. The company had the, the, this is where we had for the first time what is known as formal employment contract. That means the work they had, they had security of employment and they had also benefits, pensions and sickness uh, benefits which they could get from there. So this is, I would say, uh, I'm not studying it here, there, but I'm just drawing a long history of employment contract, especially from the army onwards. As I said, the employment contract that I'm discussing or would be looking at is suspended or at least exists in a temporal suspension between a regime, which I, I call the master-servant regime or a penal contract regime of the 19th century and the future of the gig economy future that we're going to discuss. So this is where you're seeing the palanquin bearers. These are the first servants or so-called uh, who were to be regulated by this new legal regime, which comes into being with the coming of the colonial state or the colonial government. These regimes were marked by controlling the or criminalizing the contractual relationship of employer and employee. They, they are not called employer and employee, they are called masters and servants. And the master-servant regime was a typical or peculiar regime from England, but had similar 
resonances of similar institutions in, in the continent, in France and in Germany. And this regime, which is very important for controlling labor protests and labor relations during the phase of industrial revolution by making strikes illegal by, through combination act, by criminalizing workers' protest. It helped in the industrial revolution or the accumulation of capital in that sense. And it is this regime from the late 18th century, 1770s, 1780s onwards, that is transferred to India. And that becomes the master law or master lens or master template through which varieties of labor relations in India were controlled. The central feature of that, of course, was that it was a kind of a relationship in which certain obligation on the part of the master to pay wages and all were there. But also that if you broke that contract, the masters were not punished, it was the servant. So this basic asymmetrical relationship between the master and the servant, it was a civil relationship, relationship of employment, relationship of labor. But the, the key point about this master-servant regime Criminalization of this particular asymmetrical relationship, which was inbuilt in this master servant regulation. The series of regulations which were there, from but the most important one is the 1859 uh, master servant workman's breach of contract law. But for specifically for plantations, there were specific laws which also borrowed from this master servant template. So this was the regime which came into being. This has medieval roots. For many of my friends, medieval history, these are medieval roots. And many people feel that this actually is not a contractual regime. It actually is a feudal regime to the extent that it has its root in medieval past, in the, in the ordinances of labor in the 13th century England or 16th century Elizabethan statute. It has been seen as something, a, a remnant of the past. But I think new studies or most of the studies now understand that it was a extremely malleable institution which was very useful precisely in the period of modern industrialization. It was extremely useful and it shaped industrial relations in England till the 1870s. Even when Marx was writing about free labor here in England, till the 1870s, thousands of people every year were arrested, were jailed for breaking the contract, breaking contract, breach of contract. Workers were arrested in large numbers. So, in fact, till the 1870s, 1875, till that time, workers were called servants. It's only from 1875 that the employee and employer, the words start coming. Now, this is the regime which I was talking about, or which existed in the 19th century in India and shaped many, 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 many social relations. It was there from a whole range of occupations largely wherever the European employers were confronted or had to negotiate with Indian workers, they were definitely there. But also, it also shaped whatever you can call it indigenous social relations. Indigenous labor relations were also in some way affected by it. I'm not going to discuss, the, but there is a great debate about how important, how crucial was the role of this in shaping the indigenous instead of indigenous relations shaping, which is one of the ways shaping labor relations, modern labor relations, master-servant regulations seem to have played a greater role in the 
19th century, at least till the 1920s. If you have seen uh, Joseph Lowe's Servant, uh, Harold Pinter's film, uh, Joseph Lowe's Servant, this is the Indian equivalent of that, when the master is not there, the servant. Because you know, the famous Hegelian dialectic between master-servant, the servant actually transforms himself into the master when the master degrades over time. So in a way, this is just to kind of point out that particular formation. So now we come to what is the modern industrial phase. And this is where I wanted to just look at some of the, okay, just these pictures to show this is from the 1900 and 1920s, uh, about women working in, in modern cotton mills of India. Now, Indian industrialization happens in the 1850s, beginning from 1850s, and it has a great spurt in the late 19th century and during the first world, due to several reasons. India's limited industrialization, despite lack of encouragement from colonial state, emerges in the late 19th century and new modern factories, factories are set up, mostly cotton textiles factories, which become very important. But there is a whole range of other modern industrial occupations, beginning from railways, which come in the 19th century. Now, within them, we have this, uh, the career, this is till the 1920s, 30s, we do not have what is known as uh, the new employer employment contract. It had elements of the master servant, and elements of what we call a combination of master servant regulation, also regulation through intermediaries, which was controlling or which were. So, this combination, the hybrid of intermediary control through headmen, through jobbers. Now, this is nothing so unusual in England or in Germany also. Many, many factories had jobbing systems led by leaders, led by intermediaries who took on tasks, which were shared amongst workers. This is very well known in Germany, in, 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 in France and, and in England also, this intermediary system. So this combination of master-servant to an extent and the intermediary system operated. This transformation then becomes something happens in the, in the First World War. And this is the, in the 1920s, we have the first elements of the master servant being uh, transformed into a problem. I'm just quickly going through going through this now to say what were the drivers for emergence of the new system. Was there a massive protest? Was there any reason why it was happening? It is this transformation was in some sense not only limited to India, but also had its roots in a global transformation which has happened. There were three great drivers of transformation of the uh, older systems into a new system of employment. The first and most important was transformation in the process of production itself. It's not happening in one place or other, but a new type of production system emerges, which is what is later in terms of organizational form is called vertically integrated firms. These new firms, which come into being from the 1870s, 80s, 90s in German, for instance, in the huge cartels in steelworks and so on and so forth, and a new form of organization of work happens around this time. And this work cannot now be with the old systems of systems of you know insecure unstable labor force a need for stabilizing labor force emerges very strongly that's one the second driver is of course the workers movement 
the workers movement in some sense tries to in some sense uh, opposes the industry so the, the master slave or any form of element of status based relationship in, in all over this happens in england this happens in germany everywhere we have attempt to bring it and a third third comes from strangely not from a drive from below but something from the top the emergence of what is known as social policy uh, this is strangely a kind of a relationship which is bismarckian uh, social policy of providing social insurance partly partly in, in a way to stabilize the workforce but also to also to in some ways depoliticize the workforce which has a lot of social democracy uh, which is coming up the threat of social democracy is to be is to be kind of in some ways mitigated compensated for or in some ways confronted by this new social policy from the top so these three drivers changes in the organization of production workers movement demanding new form of work relation based on and the third on uh, these were europe wide and in most of the advanced industrial countries of that time these were drivers which were moving towards a new form of labor relationship this also if you look at it on a longer term longer arc if you use karl polanyi's model you know that polanyi's argument that karl polanyi argued that the fact that a self regulating market emerged in the 18th century late 18th and early 19th century under the industrial revolution created a what he calls a disembedding of the market from social regulation social regulation the market emerges as a self regulating autonomous institution now this creates so much social disruption that there is a spontaneous reaction of the society against it and these were the forces of reaction to this disruption of self regulated market is to be seen in form of this social policy emergence of the social policy in some ways Uh, to kind of tail or re-embed the market into society. So, in in, in that's in a broader arc, but the specific drivers were these three drivers that I mentioned. Now, what is specific about India? Now, this is another axis around which us, my study goes. In a sense, employment contract is to be seen as suspended between, temporarily between three two phases, but also to be spatially to be mapped in a way to be understood. as linked to different processes for instance inside the empire transformations which are taking place within the empire but also in a global sense now this requires a certain way of understanding why did india or india what forced the british to kind of forge a new social labor relationship or a template a new template what is wrong with the how did they find the golden now in this case i'm going to just talk about one particular law which was the first law in some sense where we can see the transformation of the new employment contract the elements of the new employment contract and that law was the workmen's compensation act the workmen's compensation act might appear as what's so interesting about it in fact it was an act uh, which was applied to a very limited set of workers it did not in fact have universal applicability yet in its origin and in its formation it created a new relationship a new nexus was created between an employer and a worker how was it done 
Now that's that's where you can see the elements of a work contract emerging are being braided onto what I call so-called welfare welfare contracts. But it's not just adding of welfare to work relationship. It is a fundamental transformation of the relationship itself. How is it so? Now, in Anglo-Saxon common law regimes, there were two reasons why or two uh, particular rules which operated, which made the employer totally not liable for any accident or injury or death at work for the workers. The one rule was called the fellow servants rule. The fellow servants rule said that, and the second rule was that contributory negligence rule. As you know, the difference between codified continental law, where it works on the codes, and Anglo-Saxon law was, with, with a common law basis, was it was based on precedents and cases in case law based, which is uh, what Anglo-Saxon law was, common law, while codified law was in the continent very much, very much based on codes, actual rules, and so on and so forth. They're already, already prescribed. Here, the rules have made they were customary and so now what happens? The nexus which is created between employer and employee first time says that the employee is employer is obliged in some sense to take into account. Before that, the fellow servant rule meant that all workers who have joined an occupation already know the risk of injury to be caused by their fellow servants or their own. So in a sense, they already know about it. So then when they entered into contract, they knew about it, nothing can be done. For them. So the contract law or the contractual relationship actually denied them the possibility of seeking compensation. For there is some exgracia, maybe charity of the employer, but in legal terms, they had no liability. So the creation of a liability produces the first new nexus between employer and employee. A new nexus, which is different from the master-servant master servant nexus. Now, this Workmen's Compensation Act in 1923 is the origin of what I call the first or one of the main elements. It sets the main element of, that, of this new nexus between master and employer. That the employer is responsible for injury which happens to the worker. The second, of course, alongside that, is the idea that the worker at the workplace or in some sense is obliged to, in some sense, adhere to the rules and commands which are to his own benefit, health, occupation, etc. So, alongside the Workmen's Compensation Act, we have the factory laws coming in. The combination of Workmen's Compensation Act with the new factory laws, which are there from the 1880s and 1890s in India, but have a very different role now in 1922. So that is the factory act. How many hours or how many, what will be the safety standards? In some sense, it tells you what the work, what the limits of the exploitation by the employer was. It sets that. Alongside the workman's compensation, I build them together, you have either the first skeleton of what I call the employment contract. The third element which comes into being is the erasure or in some sense overturning of the penal contract regime, master-servant law through, first through law 
by repealing those all these laws which are there from the past and then first time creating allowing for trade unions to emerge providing immunity to the trade unions to carry on business of organizing workers this comes in 1926 so this 22 23 26 this combination of law provides in success the workers are part and parcel of a new employment contract regime which is open ended which has obligations from both sides and third and most important it has the state in some sense guaranteeing the operation there are various methods the emergence of a new administrative juridical setup in which the state can intervene into the labor relations the fourth element comes into being in india in 1928-29 with what is known as the trade disputes act this is an act or a law which comes into being in bombay because of massive strikes which happened long strike which happened in 1928 led by fledgling communist party this was the one of the longest strikes in the history of the world perhaps because it was a strike which went on for 6 months enormously successful about the communist party's trade union uh, membership jumped massively from 100 or something at the beginning of the strike to buy about 60000 workers at the end of 1928 it was extremely successful strike it was a strike which was against the rationalization schemas which were being brought in by the, by the now it was this already you have a this what i call this three a law structure now the fourth law which allows the state to intervene directly in order to arbitrate between industries But this law together this four produce the first template that means it allows for state to enter and in some sense transform or in some sense guarantee and create the condition now one of the things which i think uh, habermas wrote about is uh, and the big debate was has the contractual nature of this relationship really transformed when you have a state entering so directly into defining it in some sense guaranteeing it shaping it isn't it a form of status isn't it a form of status like people used to say okay you are a noble you are a baron you are a third whatever the aristocracy through legal forms aren't this state aren't this relationship given the nature of the status are they contract is there a contract or contract is this branch in fact that's an interesting very interesting point i think habermas talked about this double aspect of this judification this process is freedom denying house employer control over the workplaces but at the same time obliges the employer to start the work services so this particular combination freedom affirming and this coexistence of what comes to says of contract and status together is what is possible now i
and then they remained the same till 2020 with minor changes in 1976 for 70 years and if you can look at the earlier so you have a very strange bunching of labor laws at a particular point of time it had nothing to do with the actual say either industrialization it is at the beginning of industrialization but not in the number of demographics of the industrial the total number of industrial employers now we have over 500 million people working who are not followed on this or, or, or 93%. So we have this bunching of law and this law operating for a long period of time, but in practice, that will totally transform. Now, this is a, in some sense to be mapped out by looking at different moments at which you have changes. So 1980s is a major change, major transformation where the old industrial setup was despite a lot of restrictions on hiring and firing we for the first time from the 80s we have huge downsizing and stopping of the old style mills bombay mills ahmedabad mills uh, which are, they are they are kind of the workers are fired and the, the mills are stopped the composite we have what we call informalization process from above informalization workers now are working in small small workshops all around now, these workshops are outside the purview of now. So this is a, uh, the arc that I'm talking about. I want to go and quickly point out the, that the dynamic between contract and status, which existed in the master servant new forms of statusizations are simultaneously as celebrated as the rise of the new contract individual contract rather than collective any form of collective bargaining so while this is there Wolfgang Street is right in showing that actually the new gig workers new whatever this new set of uh, working relations that is coming into platform this has really changed the need which happened in the 1920s why did employers want or why did employers concede to the workers certain certain powers, certain power to bargain and so on. They did so because workers had the power to sabotage. Workers had the power to stop production. This has been very well shown by Beverly Silva in a book called Forces of Labor, which shows over the long period of time how as the capitalists try to evade the workers' power, as they go into new areas to, to develop, for instance, automobile workers moving from America to Mexico to South Africa, everywhere they go, they are, after a few months, they would find workers upsurge. So in a sense, workers' power in the old fortist uh, automobile uh, vertically integrated companies required a certain degree of trade-off with workers. The new regimes of the gig economy that we're seeing because of the technology is in some ways work managers can or the employers can surveil workers can control workers without having to having the fear of workers sabotage it is that which is making them far more interested in in a new totally new contractual regime as if you know all forms of protections are not at all necessary new totally bare-bone contract work contract which were perhaps there in the late 19th, early 19th century are being recreated now. Of course, there is attempt to kind of resist it and so on and so forth. Now, my point is that the dynamic of contract and status in the 
in the master servant regime and the employment contract regime and in the new gig economy phase are all very different. I follow Wolfgang Strick in, in actually arguing that this is possible to, to actually historically situate this dynamic. What is interesting, and that's the point I'll end with, is also the fact that this dynamic of contract and status, which is played out in different regimes in different uh, times, is also different in India or in third world, or let's say most of these countries in relation to the West. Now, this difference also needs to be mapped. What is that difference comes from? It is that the difference is the persistence of a massive informal sector. Now, this informal formal dynamic, the contract status dynamic and the formal informal dynamic have to be studied simultaneously. The second, the formal informal dynamic is a spatial dynamic. The contract status dynamic, let's say, call it, is a temporary dynamic. Okay. Now, these two dynamics need to be studied. How is it so? That every time this new regime of contract came into being, it was marked by exclusion. But it, in fact, the, the regime could come into being by excluding other people, excluding a whole range of for, for instance, by creating limits, by creating uh, thresholds on which the law will act and leaving out a large number. This was in some sense a resultant of the internal, uh, let's say, uh, the triangular conflict between a highly minority labor force, which is highly militant, the employers who didn't want any concession and a state which is interested in pacification, especially post 1919, after the Bolshevik revolution and the fear of communism, this combination produces a new type of dynamic of, so okay, it allows certain things, but it also excludes the whole. Now, this dynamic of exclusion as well as inclusion can be seen as something specific to, say, India or to especially or to the, to the to the newly industrialized, or let's say the industrializing underdeveloped countries. Now, this linkages, I, I cannot explain much more. So my aim would be to convince you, or not now immediately, but to convince you later that this spatial, formal and informal, dynamic of formal and informal, how it plays out in the future, and the dynamic of uh, contact and status, how it plays out in the future, will in some ways show what is going to happen. Now, last line to end it is that I think if there is to be any reform in order to understand uh, the thing we are, it's not a, in India, it's not, it's not or India in many of these places. What we are undergoing right now is a crisis whose depth we, are, we cannot measure by the standards of the past. That means neither through the neoliberal regime, the idea of flexibilization or, or of deregulation. What we are facing today in India and in many parts of the capitalist world is redundancy. Large part of workers are not required anymore. They are redundant. And this the, the, the making of redundancy under a highly capital-intensive, technology-intensive labor regime and a large part of the population completely out explains to an extent the massive inequality that we have seen. This is not only true of India, it's some of the India's highest point. It's happening in large parts in, in US, UK also. The redundancy of workers, it's not the cheapness of workers, which is the earlier 
idea was to cheapen labor force, which is the always now we don't need labor. So what do we do? We produce a new form of welfareism or charityism. I perceive this is what is emerging as a new form of regulation of workers or of, of people, let's say, who do not have a chance to get a job, who are dropped out of their current market. So the only answer that one can think about with, with this difference, that there is a much greater degree of redundancy which is emerging in, in uh, this new regime that is coming into being, which is at the end of the so-called neoliberal point of transformation. We have a new regime coming up, which is based on a lot of redundancy. Now, how do we, how do we, what should be the point of, should there be an inclusion, social inclusion of these uh, population through some measures, or as it happens, right-wing measures to incorporate them through, through certain forms of welfareism, which is which we have seen now is becoming important. That's one. The answer otherwise would be to create the enabling condition for reorganization of workers. The reorganization of worker, I'm not saying it as a, I think appears it may be possible to argue that any enabling legislation which makes it possible or makes it important for workers to organize can be the answer at the moment to this massive crisis that we are in the midst of, which COVID has actually accentuated a lot. I wanted to show you, I don't have that. Yeah, just to show you the last gig workers, something to show you that there are protests happening all over about these gig workers in Uber and drivers now. They are in that protest, they're demanding to be included as workers, not as self-employed, you know, self-employed people. They're demanding to be uh, asking to be workers. I think we are at the cusp of a transformation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.